0: Alright, take your Bible if you would this evening and turn to the book of Acts. We spent time last week in the book of Matthew looking at the earliest discussion about the church with our Lord. The first mention of the church there. And this evening we're going to move to the book of Acts and we're going to look actually at the founding church, the early church, and study some from their example. We'll be in Acts chapter 2 as your bulletin tells you. And I trust that our time together in the Word of God will be profitable for us this evening. There's no doubt that history has fallen on hard times in our culture. Uh, There is a dearth of historical knowledge in people in general. Our schools, many have stopped teaching history as it was taught in decades past. Even families are unaware of their history and their heritage in many cases. i completely unaware of who they are or where they came from. And I'm grateful for what is represented here in our community of longevity of families so that there is a sense of history. But generally speaking, in our American culture, many families have no concept of where they came from or what heritage they've been blessed with. Our country, of course, as a whole, is very much um, ignorant of its own history. In many ways, it's turned away from its history as a source for learning and loyalty. And our culture today is left really without history to repeat the mistakes of past generations, right? So without the ability or the knowledge of what has gone on before us and what has brought us to the place we are currently in, we're left to repeat the error of the past. And churches, unfortunately, are no different. In fact, this has been probably one of the hardest things to grasp, is that most churches, that is the people that make up a church, have really very little understanding of who they are as a church, where they came from as a church, and why they're there. Why they meet. Why they do the things they do. Why they sing the songs they sing. Why they take part in the practices in which they take part. Why there is a taking of the Lord's table and baptism. What are these things and where did they come from? And without a history, we are left really at the, at the enemy's disposal. Because we are open, we are exposed, without a heritage, without an understanding of where it is we come from and where it is we're going, we are left with a massive hole in our armor through which we can be deceived. And many today are confused. Many are bewildered about what truth is, where it comes from, who is in the truth, what is the true church. And all of that, I believe, could uh, begin a remedy in looking back to history to see who it is and that started this church, which is our Lord, And these fathers of this early church, the apostles, the foundation layers of this church, what it is that they were passionate about, what it is that they set their priority to, and what the early church was all about. And that's going to be our goal this evening. I think there's this one powerful paragraph that sums up a lot of what the early church was all about. And I trust that it will be an encouragement to us as a body, and it will be a convicting A force in our lives that we can look back and compare ourselves to this foundational church. They were raw. They were without the New Testament. Pentecost had just happened here in the book of Acts. And Luke is recounting to Theophilus, his reader, all of the acts of the apostles. Right? So the book of Luke is the account of Jesus' life written to Theophilus so that he would understand what he had been told was true. That Jesus had existed and he had done these things. And volume 2 of Luke's works is the book of Acts, where he then comes back to Theophilus and he says, now let me recount for you the foundational elements of the church and what the apostles did post-ascension of Christ. So Christ goes into heaven and now Luke picks up the account with the day of Pentecost and the foundation of the church. And that's where we're going to study this evening. So we're going to examine the church The early church at church and the early church after church. And I trust that these will be kind of hooks that you can hang on as we study Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47. Let's read them together and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, there at the end of the chapter, it says, "...and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers." with all people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord that we'll study this evening. Our Father, we submit our time now before Your truth to Your hand. We acknowledge our need for Your Spirit that we might understand the truths that we'll see and then apply them to our lives. May our church be one that is marked out As having the priority that you established at the very outset of this group of your people called the church. And we'll give you the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we will see tonight the early church at church in verses 42 and 43. And then we will look at the early church after church. And of course, that's a play on words. And of course, if you're a Bible student, that's not really even accurate, right? Church is not a building. It's not a meeting place. Church is an organism of living people. So wherever God's people are gathered together to worship Him, with the outline procedure that He's given us and the activities that we're to be about, which we're even going to look at tonight, and the leadership structure that He has ordained, we find ourselves as a church. Most of the time growing up in a pastor's home, I asked when we were going to go to church. In other words, when are we going to go to the building where the church meets? And I had a a foundational misconception of what the church was. The church was the building. The people that came were just the people that came. And I would wonder, when are we going to go over to the church? And we say that, and I understand that vernacular. And even tonight's main headings will be from that vernacular. The early church at church, that is when they were meeting, and the early church after they met in their community. What were they characterized by? What were the marks? Of that first church? What were they consumed with? What were their priorities? What were they focused on? And I trust that our time will shed some light on that. It's not difficult to see from these verses, at least in the outset, what their priorities were and what set them apart as the first church. Let me say at the outset there's an understanding here in verse 42 of what is said in verses 41 and back. If we go back in the context to just the paragraph before, go to verse 40, "...with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation, that being Peter. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added, to that, added that day about 3,000 souls." And so that's the conclusion of Pentecost. Peter has just preached the Gospel. The apostles have done it in the tongue of many people. It's a miracle of God's Spirit that was prophesied in Joel 2. And at the conclusion of that, those who received the Word, that is, those who took and believed the message of the Gospel, that in fact, this one called Jesus was the promised Messiah. The confession that Peter gave last week as we studied in Matthew 16. Those who received that, that is, committed their life to that reality in belief, were baptized. Baptized. And upon baptism, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, there is an assumed reality here that when we come to verse 42, we find the word they, that being the 3,000 souls plus the 12 who are represented in the previous paragraph. And so let's get something straight right off the bat that Peter would assume, that Luke would assume, that is that we're speaking here of a saved body of people. This is a believing body of people represented here. This is not a church that is made up of predominantly unbelief, but rather of those who have believed and been baptized and been added. And a case could be made that there was actually a numbering, obviously, that they knew a number, and they continued to add to that number. And so the church was added to there was some level of accountability given In a church membership mindset, not the way we do it today, and yet there was an understanding of who, in fact, had believed and who had been baptized, and it was these folks who were then carrying out these practices in the early church. All right? So here they are, the early church at church, and we're going to see five characteristics that marked the early church at church. Number one, it was a teaching church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was the standard course for the early converts at Pentecost. This is not a written word. This was not that the apostles had letters to read to them. There was none of that. And so you have to take your mind into a different phase in God's working where in fact there was no New Testament, there were no Gospels. There was simply the word of the apostles. And those apostles had been promised by Christ that the Spirit of God would give them the words to speak. And they would, in fact, be communicating as ambassadors for God. And so this early church was focused and devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles would have taught the good news that they were communicated in the Great Commission. In fact, the early church was excited to be the disciples that were being made from the Great Commission work of the twelve. Right? So back in Matthew 28, at the conclusion of Christ's ministry, you know the Great Commission that they would go into all the world and they would make disciples and baptize them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, correct? These people are the direct recipients of the Great Commission. And because of that, they're eager to sit under the teaching of the apostles about the gospel, about the reality of Christ as the promised one, even from the Old Testament. I know that I am, so to speak, I'm like preaching to the choir when we talk about a teaching church. The foundation of this ministry has been upon the teaching of God's Word. From 2005 till this day, it has been a centerpiece of what goes on in this church. And yet, I remind you that we must be recommitted daily to the Apostles' teaching. To the Word of the Lord given in completed form in the Bibles that we hold in our laps. And there was a day when the church was not about the apostles' teaching. In fact, there was a day when the pulpit was not in the middle of the gathering place. And maybe you've never even thought about this, but the pulpit was not always here. In fact, the pulpit was set up to the side and the sacraments were set here as the centerpiece of the gathering for Mass. And in doing so, they had set aside the teaching of the Word of God as something secondary. And it was during the Reformation that the Reformers brought the pulpit back to the middle to say, we stand in the center, the Word of God is the centerpiece of our time together. And it was a statement. Something that we take completely for granted was a statement at one point because the church had erred from devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Say, why are we so devoted to the Word of God? What is so important about the Word of God that we spend this much time every Sunday night studying paragraphs of the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go over to 2 Timothy and let's look at chapter 3 and some of the most common verses about the Bible and its self claim, its testimony about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All scripture, verse 16, is breathed out by God. It's inspired. That's what that means. Inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God or the woman of God, but specifically here Paul is talking to Timothy, an elder, may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we see here in these two verses two truths about the Word of God that make it the centerpiece of our time together and made it the centerpiece even as the apostles gave it verbally of the first church. That is, it was inspired that it was breathed out by God. They were speaking under the direction of God. And secondly, the Word of God was sufficient to make us competent and equipped for every good work. And so, to boil it all down, the reason we spend so much time in the Word of God is because we believe that it is inspired. We believe it. And the implications of that belief are that we have the living Word of God in our hands, in our laps, and how could we spend our time in any other way than coming before the very living God with the Spirit of God within us, allowing Him to speak freely to us from His Word. I read a powerful article by John Piper, I don't know, several months ago, where he wrote an article, and if you've read anything by John Piper, oftentimes he writes almost for the shock value as much as anything else. And so the name of the article was, I Heard the Voice of God. And he starts into the article about waking up early one morning, wanting to sleep, but he couldn't. He went out to the living room where he was staying, he sat down, and as clear as day, the voice of the Lord came to him. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's... uh, That's a substantial shift from where John Piper has been in the past. And I'm reading and I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. I continue to read and I continue to read. And the point of the article was to say he quoted back what God had said to him. And then he said this is from Psalm 57. And the Word of God spoke as clear as day because he had given it to me in written form. And he talked about why we chase after everything except for the very living Word of God. And So here's this first church and they are devoted to the teaching of the apostles. To the Word of God that we enjoy in written form. So, it was first and foremost a teaching church. Secondly, it was a relational church. This is interesting. Here in verse 42, if your Bible is like mine, your translation, you have a definite article before each of these characteristics. So you have a the right before each of these and that's to set them apart because the Greek language here is calling these out as specific activities of the gathering of the church and so these are particularly important further we're going to see further on in the paragraph we're going to see some of these things repeated and yet here we see the devotion of the gathering it was to the apostles teaching and the fellowship the first church was a relational church it was a sharing church And as the early church met, they were not only settled in their commitment to the Word of God and to the teaching of the apostles of that Word, but they were committed to relating to one another in the fellowship. That is, in sharing with one another. And my mind immediately ran to what my pastor in college used to read to us at the end of services. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Right? That we gather and that we are to be about provoking one another to love and good deeds. And so Christian fellowship, the fellowship that we enjoy when we gather is completely different than fellowship in general. Right? We can gather with any number of friends who are in the church or outside of the church and we can fellowship around a monopoly board or we can fellowship around a sporting event or we can fellowship around the river that we enjoy. We can fellowship around any number of things. And yet, none of those are the same as the the fellowship that we are called to when we gather together as God's people. We are to be marked out as those who relate to one another, provoking and encouraging one another to live in light of what we claim to believe. And this is tough. The early church was raw. There were 3,000 new people who just were saved. And there was a transparency and there was an openness that I'm sure we could not reinvent in our setting. And yet we are called to intrude into one another's lives and to provoke one another to love and good deeds. I would just ask you, just as a side note of application, to think about what you say when we gather together. When you ask someone how they're doing, how's your week been, uh, when you hear from them without asking what is going on in their lives, be, be particularly uh, paying attention to what you say in response. So that we can be a church that's marked, like the early church, as a relational church. Thirdly, it was not only a teaching church, it was not only a relational church, it was a remembering church. John MacArthur in his commentary calls it a Christ-centered church. Why? Because they gave themselves to the Lord's table and devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That is communion. Which I enjoyed with you all immensely last Sunday evening. And So this early church was consistent in remembering who it was that had died to rescue them. And who it was who had been raised from the dead. And who it was... That had ascended into heaven, and who it was that was coming back again. And they focused their mind on those realities as they should at the Lord's table. And so they were a remembering church. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 29, we read them last Sunday evening, communicate to us from Paul's pen that we are to be consistent and regular in our remembering the work of the Lord at His table, which He instituted for us at the Last Supper. So, the early church at church, when they gathered together, they were all about teaching, they were all about relating to one another, they were all about remembering who and what had been done on their behalf, and then, fourthly, they were a praying church. They were all about the prayers, that is, corporate prayer together. And, I mean, you might as well just scoot your toes with mine back a little bit so they don't get stomped on because this is one of those universal convicting elements, right? Prayer. Prayer. There's no, uh, there's no element of our Christian life that we feel more inadequate in than prayer. Our self-sufficiency is rampant. We genuinely do not believe if we're truthful with ourselves that we need God's interaction in our lives. That we need His intervention. That we need His power. That we need His work in us. And so, as a consequence of our thoughts, we don't pray. And as a church, if we are not consumed, as the early church was, with prayer, we will see our ministry struggle along without the dependence necessary for true growth. Now, why was it that the early church was devoted almost without instruction to prayer? I mean, here they were. One day they were unbelieving, scoffing. Crucify Him was their cry. A mere 30 days later, 40 days later, they are are gathered together. They're giving themselves the apostles' teaching. How is it that they knew... Instinctively, it seems, to give themselves to prayer. Turn back to John chapter 14 and let's look at a promise that Jesus gave his very nervous disciples who were very concerned of what they would do without their Lord at their side. Jesus tells his disciples. In verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will he do because I am going to the Father. And now in light of My going to the Father, whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. In the name of the Lord, the reason we say in Jesus' name, Amen, is simply matching the character and the will and the purposes of our Lord. And so as we pray in Jesus' name, that is, we would pray matching the very direction and the character and the thought and the desire of our Lord with what we are praying for. He promises that He will do it. And the early church was aware that their Savior, their Lord, had just ascended. The apostles were acutely aware That the one that they had spent all this time with for three years was now gone from their presence. They had the Spirit as a comforter and a teacher, and they had prayer as a means of communicating to the Father through the very one that they had spent all that time with. And so here the early church is consumed, it's devoted to prayer. So it's a teaching church, first and foremost. Not only that, it's a relational church given to fellowship one with another at its gatherings. It's a remembering church focusing on the Lord's table when it's gathered together. And then lastly in verse 42, and fourthly altogether, the church at church was devoted to prayer. These people were being taught, edified, reminded of Christ's sacrifice, and they were turning themselves to corporate prayer. None of us likes to read 1 Thessalonians 5.12 when it says, Pray without ceasing. That was a body command that was given to us as a church. That we are to be about prayer. That doesn't mean that prayer meeting is the centerpiece of what that command represents. But that does mean that when we gather together our services should have key elements of prayer and you should be praying during those times. I grew up, I mean, from the, from the womb, I was in church. And I don't know that I thought about the fact that I was to be praying when someone else was praying out loud until way down the line, probably in college, was the first time I ever thought about it. And so I would encourage you, as I pray, or as one of the men pray from the front, That you're praying. That you're not thinking about what you may be doing this evening or this week. That you're not even thinking about what you've already done this past week or this day. But that you are focusing your heart and your mind in either praying an affirmation of what is being prayed, or you are praying individually for the ministry of the Word and the time together as we minister to one another. We must be all about prayer. And then fifthly, the church at church was a powerful church. It was a powerful church. In verse 43, an awe came upon every soul. And if we translated that literally, awe kept coming repeatedly, continually upon every soul. They were in awe at all times. Why? Because many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. As should be expected at this point, Luke tells us that the church was continually in awe of the presence of the Lord. This would have been unbelievable and should be unbelievable to us that the Spirit of God is alive and working with us tonight. He's in our midst. He is working in you. He's working through me and in me right now. He's here. And because you and I never walked with the Lord in person, I don't know that we're as consumed with this reality as the early church would have been. Not only that, the Spirit was doing confirming works to put the stamp of truth on the apostles' ministry. And so they were seeing signs and wonders done. They were watching the Spirit in action, which was proving the validity of the Gospel they were preaching. Yes, in fact, Jesus was the Lord. And yes, He had ascended. And yes, His Spirit had come. And He was actually setting up His people in the church. The Spirit was powerfully working. And as we sit before the Word of God with the Spirit active in us, I would pray that we would be aware and in awe of that reality. When was the last time we were genuinely in awe of what the Spirit is doing in us and in others around us? We use the word awesome uh, so generically in our culture, right? We use awesome for cheeseburgers. That was an awesome cheeseburger. That is not the concept. We use awesome from everything from fireworks to candy to uh, a good movie. Oh, that was an awesome movie. No, it wasn't. Let's be in awe of a holy and sovereign Creator God who has chosen to save us and has given us His Spirit that works powerfully in and through us as a church. This was a church that was seeing the power of God. Let me show you something interesting, fascinating to me at least. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find a key portion about our conduct and our devotion as God's people. Ephesians chapter 5, and look with me in verse 15. It says, "...look carefully then how you walk, that is, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise." making the best use of the time or redeeming the time for the days are evil. Right? Familiar passage. Therefore, do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not be drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but in contrast, be filled with the Spirit. So we are to live life out of control. Out of control. We are not in control of life. And Paul here makes a contrast between living your life out of control and in the control of another, that being wine or alcohol or any other power over us. And he contrasts that to living out of control, that is under the control of another, that being the Spirit of God. And here's what he says about those who are living filled with the Spirit here are the characteristics. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You say, well, great. That's, that's, that's wonderful. I know that that's there. What's so fascinating about that? What's fascinating about that is what we find in Colossians chapter 3. We flip over just a couple pages. We find Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he characterizes what that will look like in your life. So if the Spirit of God is filling you and you are consumed and under the control of the Spirit, you've just seen the characteristics. And now in Colossians 3, if the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. Here are the characteristics teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving and thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see any similarity between the two? <clears throat> as we live under the power of the Spirit and we live consumed with the word that the Spirit has given us, we will be known as those who are ministering to one another. So here, this powerful church is seeing the Spirit of God at work. And I would pray that we as a a brand new ministry would be in awe of what God is doing in and through His Spirit's work and in and through the Word that has been transmitted to us by the Spirit. So, that's the early church at church. They were a teaching church. They were a relational church. They were remembering what Christ had done. They were praying fervently and they were powerful in the Spirit. Okay? That's the church at church. In our history lesson, we are at the first scene of history. Here is the beginning and we have seen the priority of this ministry. Now, let's look at this early church when they leave church. They leave out of the meeting and now what does Luke Give to us as their priority and their practice outside of the church. Verses 44 through 47. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all people, that being outside of the church. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here is the early church after church. Four characteristics of this early church after church. It was unified. It was a unified church. Verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This was a church that knew no division. They had one Lord, one faith. As we sang last week, this was a church that was completely unified in everything, in fact, to an extreme level in our experience. This was a radical unity. This was a unity that left no one, no one on the outskirts. There was no fringe section of the early church. All were together, and they had everything in common. They were sharing, and they were caring for one another with full unity. What a testimony that is to us. Our idea of church often is a place where we go, we fulfill a religious duty, and we leave. And yet, the New Testament example is that the church is a unified body. It's a body. It has elbows, knees. It's a body that operates in unison or it operates dysfunctionally. And so here is the early church and they're living in unity. They're together, and they're sharing all things in common. Now they go one step further. Not only is it unified, but it's a sacrificial church. And this is where things get extreme in our mindset. Verse 45 tells us they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This church, this first church, was not only unified, it was so sacrificial that it was attempting to eliminate need altogether. This church was committed to there being no one who was left as one who was in need. To the place where those who had extra would sell what they had. And we know from further accounts that they sell land and property to give, it seems, to a fund that the disciples then would pass out to those in need. So they had a radical, sacrificial approach to their time together. They voluntarily sold their possessions. This was not commanded. You can't find this commanded, that you sell your possessions and give it to the church. And yet the example is one of unity to the point of pain. Giving until it hurt. This is a convicting thought. We've having a missionary here in our midst is kind of an awkward thought to bring this illustration to bear, but all through my young life, I've heard of giving for missionaries. And oftentimes, missionaries would come home on furlough and uh, they would be staying somewhere and they would ask for possessions for the missionaries. And so they would tell us that they needed one chair and uh, a mattress set and, and maybe a couch. And if you had any appliances that you could give, maybe a microwave. And and I've got to tell you up front, some of the things that we saw come in for that was just uh, we wouldn't put our animals on those couches, and yet we were giving them as gifts, quote-unquote, to those who were faithfully serving the Lord. This is not the example of the early church. They were actually selling what they had and bringing that and distributing it to those who had need. So radically sacrificial, not the second best, but giving of their own possession for the sake of those who were in need. So it was a unified church. When they left, they were were still together. They were in common in all things. They were sacrificing away from the church for the betterment of the church. Thirdly, they were consistent. It was a consistent church. They gathered daily at the temple. This was before persecution started. Many of them were Jewish believers. Jesus was obviously... The covenant promised one to the Jewish people. They were gathering in the outer courts of the temple and singing and praising God. Consistently living their lives before the culture in which they lived in a way that was exemplary, that caused no reproach upon the name of their Lord. Not only did they gather at the temple, verse 46 tells us, but they were breaking bread in homes. That is, they were eating together in homes. They received their food, it tells us, with glad and generous hearts. And this is one thing that we can really get our arms around in American culture, right? If we're going to be together, let's eat. Right, let's, let's make sure we're eating. This church was all about consistency. Day by day they were doing this. Meeting in the temple. Breaking bread in each other's homes. Going with one another. Spending time together. And with joy in their hearts, they were giving generously to one another in every facet. These were consistent people. This was a consistent church. And look at what verse 47 tells us about this church in its in its community. Praising God and what having favor with all people. This was a church that was gaining favor with many because of their consistency. It's hard not to read these verses and then immediately call into question our activities as God's people. We're a brand new church. We're gathered together, many, not even knowing yet if they're going to join with us permanently. And yet, I think we can come as God's people and we can look at our own lives and put up the mirror of God's Word, as James calls it, and allow ourselves to see ourselves for who we are in comparison to this foundational and early church. These were consistent people worshiping God, fellowshipping with one another around the meal table and they were peaceful and well thought of by their community. Granted, that was about the end as persecution would come and the scattered church would go into all the world planting churches and feed what would then develop into what we know today as the universal church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 7 tells elders that they are to be well thought of in their community as above reproach. And this was the mark of the early church. Okay, lastly, the early church after church. Not only was it unified, sacrificial, consistent, but it was growing. And this is the powerful section here concludes with a recognition that the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Notice how, how much God is the centerpiece of that section. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself was adding to their number, that is, to the number of those who had believed and been baptized. And He was adding to their number from who? Where was He gathering these numbers that He was adding day by day from those who were being saved? God was powerfully using this church to bring the Gospel to bear on the lives of sinners and God was saving people and bringing them into the church. Let me challenge you with a prayer request for our young church. May we be a church that is being added to because God is saving sinners. The standard fare in American churches is growth by osmosis, right? Right? So whichever ones you're closest to, they come into yours. And so there's a general idea that church growth oftentimes is just gathering Christians who are elsewhere. And that's a part of growth. There's no doubt about that. And yet there is a a part of growth that we see in the early church that oftentimes is drastically missing or at least small in our assemblies. So I'm praying that God would do a work here in our community that we would be a light and a salt, and that people would be being saved and added to our church. First generation growth. What could be more exciting than seeing God do that? So this is it. That's our early church. And this is the history lesson. This ultimately is where we come from. This is why we get together. This is why we study the Word of God. It's why we pray together. It's why we take communion together. It's why we attempt to relate to one another and disciple one another and encourage one another to love and good works. All of these things flow from our foundation. This early church in Acts chapter 2. Now, having seen the history of where we come from, I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, where are we going? Is this the direction that we are headed? Is this the thought and the priority of your mind? Is this the expectation of your mind? And it should be. You should expect these things to be part of what we do when we gather together. And what we do when we leave our gathering. I put in my notes here at the conclusion, would a church historian or a transplant, let's say a transplant from the early church, some of you uh, Star Trek people, uh, somebody got beamed into our church from back then, Would they be able to identify us as obviously a church that falls in the heritage of the first church? Would they know us as, oh, this must be a church in the family line of that first church? It's obvious because of what they're about. It's obvious because of their unity. It's obvious because of their sacrifice for the needy and for one another. It's obvious because of their devotion to the Word, to prayer, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. It's obvious because they're consistent in their lifestyle before their community. It's obvious because God is adding to this church those who are being saved. Would that be the stamp that could be put upon us? We would pray that that would be true in us as a people. How can you and I give ourselves more wholly to the elements of corporate meetings? How can we devote our mind and our focus more to what we're doing, understanding why we're doing it, and how can we give ourselves more sacrificially for the unity of the church? Can we open our home more? Can we sell any possessions to give to those who we know are in need? Can we give to the church to find those who are in need, as many of you have? And I wrote in my notes, this church's testimony is already in place. And I with Paul in First Thessalonians would say, You do not need to be told these things. Excel still more. These are already the things the Lord is doing. This is already the mark of generosity, of fellowship, of a biblical focus, of prayer, and of commitment to what God has set out before us. So as we look at history, and as we look to the future which is the unknown, may we pray together and focus our hearts together in dependence on God that these marks would set us apart before Him, this is not a comparison game. This is not a competition with any other assembly. Simply before the Lord, may we be known as a church that is centered on those things that He has set us to be centered on. We won't be alone. There will be others who join with us. We won't be alone in our community. There will be other churches who will also join in this pursuit. And yet, may we be found faithful in the pursuit of being a church that brings honor to God by obeying and representing what He has accomplished and what He has founded, even at this early church. Alright? That's our heartbeat. That's our prayer. That's my heartbeat and my prayer for us as a church, it's David and I's heartbeat as your pastors, that these things would mark us out as men of God first and foremost, that we would be quick to fight the despising of our youth by our devotion to the Lord and to these characteristics. Alright? I trust that's been encouraging to you. Let's pray together. and Then we'll spend some time fellowshipping together out on the patio. Our Father, thank You for all who have come tonight. Thank You for our time together. We have attempted to make much of You to recognize You as the Lord of the church who has given us Your Word to direct us, to guide us. You've promised us as we found ourselves on Your truth and on the confession of Your Son as the living and true God who was promised and who came as Savior and Lord, that You would grow us, that You would develop us, that death would never have victory over us. And so as we've gathered tonight, we have taken another look at Your Word. We've reminded ourselves of what we're to be about. And now we turn to You and ask this week as we leave our gathering, And we go out into our community. May our time outside of here be marked as those who are unified as a body of Christ. Those who are sacrificing for one another. Those who are consistent in lifestyle and seeing growth as we evangelize our community. Those who do not know You around us. May we be faithful to speak Your Word boldly and to live Your Word consistently as we depend upon Your grace that works through us. Thank You for what You've founded here. Thank You for what has been established already as a pattern. May You find us faithful as Your people and as Your church. We submit ourselves now in Jesus' name and for His name's sake. Amen.